Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. In just a few minutes, we'll be talking to the one and only Adam Schiff about a few things he's got going on this week. A little busy. The one and only. The one and only. I thought we were booking Jim Jordan this whole time. <laughs> He, uh, yeah, he could make it. He's, uh, he's, he's yelling at a wall. He's somewhere. like, oh, I hulked out of my shirt. I, I got to go change. I don't respect his policy on uh, undermining the rule of law. I do respect his no jacket policy. Yes, me too. Uh, we're also going to talk about what recent Democratic victories in red states like Kentucky and now Louisiana can tell us about the politics of impeachment and break down the brand new Des Moines Register poll that shows Mayor Pete way out in the lead. And finally, you'll hear my interview with a good friend of the pod who stopped by the office on Friday, Senator Sherrod Brown. Uh, man, big pods today, guys. Huge pods. Uh, uh, love it. How was the show this week? We had a great love it or leave it. Joined by Whitney Cummings, Joe Mandy, one of the funniest shows we've done in a long time. So check it out. Apparently, Dion Waiters ate an edible and they had to land the plane. <laughs> yes. Heard that. Heard that. Um, Very relatable. Love it. I, I believe you also have an announcement about a little uh, love it or leave it road trip. Yes. Love it or leave it. It's coming to Iowa City on January 30th, right before the caucuses. The presale starts Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central. Crooked.com slash events. The password's crooked in all caps. And you can come check out the show. And speaking of Iowa. Speaking of Iowa. Tommy, this is the big week, right? Tuesday, the first part of a five-part series on the Iowa caucuses will be released. Uh, Tuesday's episode is going to focus on the Obama campaign in Iowa, the way we structured it, our strategy, uh, and what it meant for his candidacy over the long term, because I think it helps us understand why there's so much focus on Iowa today. And then episode two, we're going to go through all the history of how Iowa became first, and we'll dig into the pretty reasonable arguments that maybe this isn't the best way to pick a president. We'll talk about the good and the bad of the Iowa caucuses. And then there will be four episodes in a row, and then we're going to do one more in January, uh, closer to the results. So I've been working on this a while with the great folks at Pineapple Street Studios, and very excited to release it to the world. And I will just say a little endorsement for me. Um, I realize there's a lot going on this week, a lot of hearings tomorrow morning, but listen to the first episode. It's it is great. so great. It is, you know, especially because all we do is talk about polls and politics and national stuff. And when you hear some of these field organizers, um, you're just, you can't help but be inspired. Yeah. I think that'll be the part people like, which is that uh, politics feels bad all the time. But when you're hanging out with a 20 year old who is dedicating their life to trying to help a candidate win, no matter who that candidate is, it is inspiring and impressive and uh, something worth doing. Yep. Um, finally, we'll be doing our live group thread during the public impeachment hearings nearly every day this week and on Wednesday night during the debate. <laughs> Sounds so excited. Uh, Big week of news. You can so you can hear from us in real time while everything's happening. Subscribe to our channel at YouTube.com/slash/CrookedMedia. Okay, let's get to the news. With us this morning, House Intelligence Chairman and friend of the pod, Adam Schiff, Congressman. Thanks for being here. It's great to be with you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, we want to start with something that's been troubling us about how you've conducted this hearing. It was bad last week. It looks to be worse this week. You've scheduled these hearings to begin at 9 a.m. Eastern, which is 6 a.m. Pacific. You are our congressman. We, I live in your district. How can you do this to us? Well, you're just going to have to get up early. What can I tell you? Um, but we have uh, two hearings back to back. So we'll be going all morning, afternoon, and potentially into the evening. So they're going to be long days ahead of us. Uh, I will say, uh, Congressman, you've made us all very proud out here in uh, Los Angeles, the way that you've uh, conducted the hearing so far. Um, of all the testimony and developments from last week, what do you hope the main takeaway is for people who might have not been paying super close attention? Well, I hope people will get a sense of many things, of the seriousness of the president's misconduct, um, of the dedication of the public servants from the State Department and 
the Defense Department and elsewhere who uh, came forward against the wishes of the administration, who did their lawful duty, answered uh, a lawful subpoena, uh, and told the American people what they what they knew. Um, that's the way it should be. We're facing, I think, one of the most significant uh, and all-encompassing obstruction campaigns that we've ever seen by a president. Uh, and these courageous people like um, Basti Ivanovich and Bill Taylor and George Kent and others that the country will hear from this week uh, have testified you know, at great risk to themselves and their careers. And uh, I hope the public will have an appreciation for their courage, and I hope it will inspire others. Congressman, the, the Republicans' defense of Trump seems to shift over time, but a lot of them uh, are settling on a question about the president's intent and his personal motives in this quid pro quo or this extortion scheme. Um, it, it seems like they are in part dismissing evidence from witnesses as hearsay as a way to build that defense. How will Democrats deal with that argument since at the same time Republicans are also trying to prevent people like Mulvaney or Pompeo from Bolton from testifying when they would actually be able to speak to the president's mindset and intent? Well, this is the thing that I think is so difficult for Republicans, which is they are supporting the president's efforts to stonewall. Uh, They're not uh, urging the administration to make these witnesses available. Few of them are saying anything about all the thousands of documents the administration was holding. Uh, And instead, they're saying, well, there should be more direct witnesses. Uh, The reality is, though, we have plenty of direct witnesses. Uh, We have, for example, Mick Mulvaney, the president's chief of staff, uh, saying on live television how uh, there was a quid pro quo that essentially the military aid was being withheld because they wanted Ukraine to do this political investigation into this discredited theory that it was Ukraine that interfered in our election in 2016, not the Russians. Uh, You have other witnesses who... I think uh, quite directly, uh, even though their testimony may be limited to discrete uh, episodes, go right to the heart of the president's intent. Um, And Robert Holmes is one of them. Now, I can only speak to his written testimony because that's all that's been released so far. But he overhears this conversation in this restaurant in Kiev between Ambassador Sondland and the president, in which the president wants to know, are the Ukrainians going to do the investigations? And Sondland assures him that they are. Uh, And when they get off the phone, uh, the State Department employee uh, asks, and these are not my words, so you'll forgive me, does the president give a shit about Ukraine? And Sondland's answer is, he doesn't give a shit about Ukraine. He just cares about the big stuff. And that means what affects his uh, personal interests. And that, I think, uh, tells you a lot about the president's intimate involvement in this, uh, as well as his frame of mind, what he cares about, whether he's acting in the U.S. interests. uh, And of course, the U.S. national security interests are in helping defend Ukraine against Russian aggression. Congressman, uh, you obviously don't want to wait for weeks and months for courts to settle this, but why not at least try to subpoena Bolton and Mulvaney and then hold them in contempt if they don't show up? What's sort of the thinking behind the strategy there? Um, in terms of uh, Bolton and Mulvaney? Yeah. Um, well, we subpoenaed Mulvaney. Uh, so he has received a subpoena and he has defied it. Uh, Bolton has told us if, he, uh, if we subpoena him, he will take us to court. And this is what his lawyers have said. Uh, we're not interested in playing rope-a-dope uh, for months in the courts. Uh, we think that uh, Bolton should do what uh, three individuals who work for him have done, uh, and that is... Uh, he should make himself available and come and testify. Uh, He should show the same courage that uh, those that work for him have demonstrated 
they were also instructed not to testify. They also did so at personal risk. They were told uh, in no uncertain terms that you know things they say could be privileged and therefore they shouldn't come. But they did anyway. And if Bolton were sincere about his willingness to testify, then he would have uh, come to the deposition when we asked him to. So right now we've seen testimony from uh, Taylor, Kent, Yovanovitch. It has been, I think, extraordinary to watch, devastating uh, to the arguments that Republicans have been making. And yet I think there's been this dichotomy in the hearings between the kind of show that some of your Republican colleagues are putting on and then the struggle of the the Republican lawyer to actually make inroads into the argument. And I think there's a distance there between the facts that are really impossible to argue with and the political realities and equities that the Republicans are grappling with. And they're sort of desperate to try to distract from this sort of mounting evidence. Behind the scenes, is there a different posture on the part of these Republicans? Are there more sort of open and reflective conversations behind the scenes that we're not seeing? Or is what we're seeing on television the posture they're showing you uh, when the cameras aren't on? Well, I, you know, I think, uh, and I certainly, I get feedback from some of my colleagues uh, um, on both the Democratic and Republican side, including Republicans, senior Republicans who uh, would come up to me after hearing and say, you did really well. Um, that's not something they're going to say publicly. Publicly, they're all attacking me. Um, but others, uh, you know, are more candid, I think, with some of my colleagues uh, and are willing to express their concerns. You know, some, frankly, express the concerns uh, early on in public. Uh, Mike Turner, for example, expressed that he thought what the president had done was not OK in that call. But as we've seen the president come down on anyone uh, who deviates from the party line that this was a perfect call in any way, um, they go after him. And so the Mike Turner that we heard in the hearing the other day was a completely different Mike Turner than we heard a month ago. Uh, you know, similarly, the president went after, I think, uh, Mac Thornberry. When Mac Thornberry said on the Sunday show that it was not a perfect call and it was problematic. Um, and the president called that a fool's errand uh, to, to say things like that. And so the White House, I think, has been very heavy-handed, skillful, you might say, in so eviscerating anyone who deviates from Trump's orthodoxy that they're scared. Uh, and so we see this spectacle where some are auditioning for the president uh, for future roles, potentially in the Trump administration. Uh, some are just trying to keep their head down and others are, uh, you know, just not willing to confront this deeply unethical man. But how could you watch this testimony? How could you hear people like uh, Bashar Yovanovitch and Taylor and uh, Mr. Kent and not be alarmed that the president of the United States was withholding hundreds of millions of dollars that all of us in Congress supported uh, to defend Ukraine against Russian aggression, really to defend the United States uh, against Russian expansionism, um, and holding it up to try to coerce this dependent ally to do these political investigations. Uh, you can imagine how they would feel if any Democratic president were ever to engage in half this conduct. Uh, two quick things. First, I just want to note that this conversation has been chock-a-block with pizzazz, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> second, <laughs> second uh, Roger Stone was just convicted of lying to Congress to protect Trump. Gordon Sondland had to revise his testimony and may have to again. Uh, these individuals haven't demonstrated, uh, let's call it, a lot of respect for the truth. Are you concerned about President Trump possibly pardoning Roger Stone and what message that might send to others who are asked to testify? 
Well, I, I've been concerned all along with the president's abuse of the pardon power uh, in the way that he would dangle pardons over people, uh, like I think he did with Michael Cohen, uh, in the way that he would uh, praise people like Paul Manafort, who refused to cooperate, and call others who did cooperate rats, uh, the way he speaks like an organized crime boss. Uh, so, yes, uh, we have to, I think, all be concerned with the continuing possibility that Donald Trump will pardon either Roger Stone or Paul Manafort or others, uh, and the message that would send. Uh, you know, I have to say, uh, those kind of actions only build to the case against the president for obstruction of justice and obstruction of the Congress. Uh, so there's a peril in the president taking those steps. Uh, you know, one thing is perfectly consistent about this president, and that is he doesn't care about anyone else or anything else uh, but himself. So uh, the judgment about whether to pardon any of these people will be strictly viewed through the prism of what's best for Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, I don't know how to weigh that calculus uh, for the White House, uh, except that they must know that uh, where do you engage in this kind of abuse of the pardon power, uh, he may be just uh, adding to the weight of evidence against the, the president in a potential account uh, for obstruction of Congress and obstruction of justice. Do you expect Gordon Sondland to revise his testimony uh, once again this week? It seems like he's in need of some uh, uh, recollection refreshment again. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what to expect. Um, I can say that one of the reasons we want to do these hearings uh, in open session now that we've done our preliminary fact-finding is we want the American people to be able to judge the credibility of these witnesses for themselves um, and make their own determinations about who they believe is telling the truth and uh, who might not be. Um, I, I think that uh, you know the Stone case does demonstrate that uh, we take um, perjury before our committee very seriously. Uh, there are two people now who have been convicted of it, Michael Cohen and Roger Stone. Uh, and I would hope that all the witnesses that come before us will be very mindful of their obligation to uh, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Speaking of perjury, which is you know very hot right now, uh, <laughs> uh, there's uh, reports that the House may look into whether or not uh, President Trump lied in his answers to Robert Mueller. Uh, is uh, is there any truth to that? And can you tell us any more about that? Well, you know, one of the uh, obviously the most important parts of the Mueller report, indeed half the Mueller report, was about the president's efforts to obstruct justice. Uh, and if the president uh, lied in his answers to Mueller, lied under oath, um, that only further substantiates uh, a case of obstruction of justice. Um, when we get done with our investigation in the Intelligence Committee and we make our report to the Judiciary Committee, um, we as a caucus, uh, you know, in consultation with the Constitution and our conscience, are going to have to determine what's the remedy for this presidential misconduct. And are we prepared to say that this is now acceptable, okay, something that we have to expect now in future presidents, or if not, uh, what's the remedy? And if the remedy are articles of impeachment, we'll have to consider whether to include among those articles uh, the president's obstruction of justice. And if he lied uh, to Congress, that could be part of that kind of an article. It could be something independent of that. Um, but uh, those are questions for another day. Uh, right now, we still need to finish our fact-finding. And um, But pursuing this grand jury material, and this is the context in which that issue came up today, um, will help inform us on... Uh, 
the issue of obstruction of justice. So Republicans are telling reporters that uh, two of this week's witnesses, Kurt Volker and Tim Morrison, will actually help undermine the case for impeachment. Why do you think they're saying that? And, and what do you anticipate Republicans will try to argue in, in their hearings? Well, I, I, look, I, I'm glad uh, that the Republicans at least had uh, some witnesses that were relevant and could provide uh, important information for the American people. And, and so we're calling them this week. Um, I think both of these witnesses have things that are very uh, damning to the president's case. Um, and so I, I look forward to their testimony. I, you know, we've had an extensive deposition with both. Uh, Volker was one of the first witnesses we brought in. I think we know a great deal more now than we did when he originally testified. Um, but uh, I think both of these witnesses um, have very important testimony that goes to the president's misconduct. And I will leave it to uh, the public to judge uh, who their testimony helps or hurts. But, um, you know, one of the key elements of Morrison's testimony uh, is that in Warsaw on September 1st, uh, immediately after Pence is talking to Zelensky, uh, Ambassador Sondland uh, and Morrison witnesses that walks over to uh, Andrei Yermak, one of Zelensky's top aides, has a private conversation, then comes over to tell Morrison what was said. And what he tells Morrison is, I informed the Ukrainians that if they wanted the military aid, uh, they were likely going to have to do these investigations that the president wanted. Um, that is about as direct evidence of coercion, bribery, extortion, uh, as you're going to find. And why they think that's helpful to the president, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> yeah, seems bad. <laughs> um, well, I'll just, I'll just end where I began. I mean, obviously, you, you know, have selected sort of the order of all these witnesses for specific reasons. What is the story you're hoping that collectively the witnesses this week tell the American people uh, about, uh, about President Trump's behavior? Well, I think these witnesses um, lay out uh, a long course of conduct that uh, began with a campaign against Ambassador Yovanovitch uh, to, first of all, get rid of this ambassador who was a thorn in their side, uh, who was championing anti-corruption efforts, urging the Ukrainians not to engage in political prosecutions. Uh, and, of course, what they wanted was for Ukraine to engage in two particular political uh, prosecutions, uh, so they clear the way by getting rid of Ambassador Ivanovich. Uh, they bring in um, this regular channel uh, that runs from the president through Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, through Ambassador Sondland, through Rudy Giuliani, to the Ukrainians in order to um, essentially bribe or coerce them into doing two investigations that Donald Trump believed would help his reelection, one into the Bidens and one into this uh, debunked conspiracy theory about 2016. And the president was willing to condition a White House meeting that President Zelensky desperately wanted and $400 million in U.S. taxpayer uh, funds to help Ukraine defend itself against the Russians uh, in order to get Ukraine to do this dirty work. And I think, you know, what the American people are going to have to decide and, and Congress as their representatives is, are we prepared to say that that's somehow now compatible with the oath of office, that uh, a president can abuse... Uh, his power this way. And at the end of the day, I, you know, I keep coming back to uh, what Mr. Holmes said, um, and that is, if the President of the United States doesn't care about our defense or Ukraine's defense, um, only cares about 
his personal interests, that's a profound danger to the country. And we're going to have to decide what needs to be done about it. So I, I hope that uh, Americans are watching. Uh, I think they are. And uh, that they will help inform their representatives about what they think our response should be. Congressman Schiff, uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for the time and uh, best of luck this week. Thank you very much. You take care. We will be back with more news. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. All right. So uh, we talked uh, about this a little with Congressman Schiff, but I wanted to get uh, your reaction to Friday's hearing with Ambassador uh, Marie Yovanovitch, who Trump fired after Rudy Giuliani, uh, his indicted Russian mobster friends and a bunch of corrupt Ukrainians orchestrated a smear campaign against her because she was standing in the way of the uh, bribery and extortion scheme. Um, I'll be honest, I I hadn't thought that this hearing would be um, a huge deal because she didn't have as direct a connection to the specific uh, scheme. But I thought her testimony was incredibly powerful because um, I thought her entire career as a nonpartisan diplomat who served her country in dangerous places and, and fought corruption in Ukraine stood as such a stark contrast to the deeply corrupt man uh, and men who destroyed that career. And um, and so, I don't know. What, Tommy, what was your reaction to the hearing? I mean, I think we all have to remember that people who get to the rank of ambassador are the best of the best in the Foreign Service. You have risen through the ranks. You're like a three-star or a four-star general. So these are like unbelievably seasoned, accomplished, professional people who often work in dangerous places. So it is really nice that that did break through. But then you can contrast that with the like three amigos or the, you know, or Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman and the fraud guarantee gang who are cooking up a James Bond mission at a Hanukkah party at the White House <laughs> is the Channel 2 diplomacy. And I think it it speaks to one, the 
just idiocy and absurdity of what the Trump administration was trying to do and just how brazenly corrupt what they were working on was. Love it. What'd you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that what's striking about these hearings, the two hearings we saw, right? We had uh, uh, Kent and Taylor, and obviously there was a Twitter hubbubaloo about whether or not it was dramatic enough. And then we had uh, Ivanovich and Taylor and Kent helped really establish the fact pattern so clearly about the, the wrongdoing. But of course, we're going into these hearings where the wrongdoing is self-evident and, you know, corroborated on multiple fronts by virtually every witness with any kind of honesty. And you can have the dishonest witnesses who've had to revise their testimony because the evidence boxed them in. And so there's sort of two things going on. One is building the fact case. And that's like it's it's a bit like, you know, Democrats are trying to get weight on one side of a seesaw and Republicans are kind of screwing their side of the seesaw to the ground because they know that, like, there's just so much evidence against them. And what was striking about Yovanovitch is put all that aside. The case is the case. And it's pretty fucking clear. This is a righteous person. And there was a there was a moment that I'll always remember when uh, the, the Republicans said to her, you know, doesn't the president have the right to have the, uh, you know, the ambassador he wants? And, and, and she says, yes, of course. But why did he have to smear me? Yeah. And it was this incredible moment of, of a woman who gave her life into the service of this country and says, you know, several times in these hearings that all she has is her reputation. And she saw that shredded by this president. And it's only by dint of impeachment that she's had the opportunity to make her case publicly and to be redeemed. And, you know, Twitter, social media, the way politics is covered, it's designed to make you cynical. It's designed to make you feel as if your sentiments are somehow unearned or childish or naive. She went to a jazz club at the end of her tough week and she got a round of applause. And there was something so wholesome about that. This woman had a really hard week and she just wanted to unwind with some jazz. (laughs) (laughs) And she went and they gave her a round of applause. And like, you know, I think what we're seeing in this week, to me, my takeaway was that this was a revolt of people with integrity against people who don't have it. And it has been nice to see that that honorable behavior, that righteous behavior still has currency still can get a foothold in our politics. Yeah, I, I think it was an important point that because the Republicans are obviously trying to say we're trying to say during that whole hearing, um, president can fire whoever he wants. That's the deal. Right. And then, then they try to do the whole like, you still have a job, don't you? Aren't you still that happy? You the know? most condescending thing. Yeah, you, weren't, you weren't marched down the street while someone rang a shame bell. <laughs> and I think like the, the reason besides everything that you just said, love it, why she was a powerful witness the reason I think she was an important witness for the case against Trump is she would agree and the Democrats would agree. Of course, the president can fire whoever he wants at any time. And of course, like if you have disagreements on policy, on foreign policy, especially with the people who are serving you abroad, um, you can make changes or stuff like that. And, and, and this is someone who has worked under Republican and Democratic administrations. And many of these career service officers, career ambassadors, like they don't necessarily have to agree with the policy of the president that they're serving, but they, they're they diplomats for America and they carry out that policy to the best of their ability. And basically what she's saying, what the Democrats are saying is, all that aside, <laughs> what the president cannot do, must not be able to do, is get someone out of the way, fire someone, purely for their own personal political interest to basically run this bribery and extortion scheme. Yeah, That's was, the problem. If he was so confident in his ability to fire anyone he wants at any time he wants, why cook up a pretext that smears her character and accuses her of a bunch of things she didn't do? It, it, like, he undercuts his own argument in the process of making it. And then he goes on to attack her in the middle of the hearing itself and blame her for the problems that exist politically in Somalia? 
Like it was just so fucking absurd and childish and outrageous. And you know, he's now attacked at least four witnesses in the impeachment inquiry: Bill Taylor, uh, Yovanovitch, Alex Vindman, not by name. And then he, over the weekend, he attacks Mike Pence's current aide. And the best that pathetic, sniveling Reagan impersonator could do in response <laughs> is state. She works at the State Department. Well, guess what, buddy? All NSC staffers, by and large, the mass majority of National Security Council staffers are detailed from other agencies. So she currently works for you. Yeah, I mean, there was so, you know, Trump does this during the hearing. <laughs> I mean, this, Marie Ivanovich, right? Like part of the hearing is about how Trump on the phone call with Zelensky called her bad news, said that she's going to be going through some things. And so Schiff is asking her how that felt. And she she answers, as you uh, talked about, Love It, and saying, like, you know, well, why does he have to smear my reputation? That's all we have. This has been a painful period. She talked about her friend saying that the color actually um, went from her face when she read the transcript. Um, and then as that's happening, he, he, he sends that tweet. And, you know, there was this whole debate. Um, is this witness intimidation? Should, you know, Democrats add that to the impeachment case? I don't know if, you know, you've talked about this before, Tommy, like, I don't know if we need to get into the like a legal weeds about what's witness intimidation or what's not. Like, what we do know is this is a case we're trying to make to the public about impeachment and a case that we're trying to make to Republicans. And if the president is attacking witnesses while they're testifying <laughs> or before, like, and every single person who works for him who then says the truth is suddenly a never-Trumper who deserves to be attacked. Like, whether you add it to the articles of impeachment or, a lot, or not, it doesn't look too good. It, and also, <laughs> they're trying to out the whistleblower, right? His allies are, his son tweeted the name of an individual he thought to be a whistleblower. Uh, Steve King uh, tweeted a picture of one of George Soros's kids who has never worked in government, but that didn't stop him from like... So we also, we, we have this pattern and we also saw fairly recently that uh, a crazy MAGA guy was willing to send pipe bombs to a bunch of people he perceived as enemies. So I think we should be a little more careful with our words when we're the president of the United States. Yeah. I think there's a few other um, parts of her testimony that were worthwhile in building the case against Trump. Um, she testified that there wasn't a shred of legitimacy to the conspiracy theory that Ukraine meddled in, in 2016, which she would know because she was the ambassador there. And, um, and she also testified that Joe Biden was, in fact, fighting corruption when he got that prosecutor fired and carrying out the wishes of not only the Obama administration, but the global community. And like George Kent said, yeah, there could have been a potential conflict of interest with Hunter being on the board. But remember, because this kind of gets lost in a lot of the uh, in a lot of the coverage, uh, Donald Trump and Giuliani didn't just want an investigation into Burisma itself or to Hunter Biden himself. They wanted the investigation into Joe Biden pushing for the firing of the prosecutor in the Burisma case, right? And so, and and every single person who's testified without fail has said Joe Biden did the absolute right thing in firing that prosecutor. So the whole, you know, we had to go through this whole thing was like, there's no evidence that Joe Biden did anything wrong. It's like, no, no, it's not just no evidence. Joe Biden did the right thing. He was fighting corruption when he did that. So I think that, I thought that was pretty important. Um, so uh, since Yovanovitch's testimony, there has been uh, three additional Trump administration officials who've testified in private. Jennifer Williams, as you pointed out, Tommy, an aide to Mike Pence, who was on the call with Trump and Zelensky and testified that it was, quote, inappropriate. Tim Morrison, a White House national security aide who testified that Sondland did not exaggerate how closely he worked directly with Donald Trump. Uh, and David Holmes, an American diplomat in Ukraine who overheard a phone call where Trump asked Sondland, so President Zelensky is going to do the investigation? To which Sondland said... <laughs> Mr. President, Zelensky loves your ass. No, no, no. Loves your ass. 
Get it right. CNN got it right. Zelensky Look, loves your ass. Do we know that? Loves your ass. He loves your... Mr. President, he loves your ass. It was... Mr. President, he loves it, your ass. It was so funny watching Mr. President, the CNN... He loves your ass. The CNN people got it wrong over and over. The, the emphasis was on ass the whole time. And I don't think that's what was Watching conveyed. Phil Mattingly and CNN, that's the <laughs> clip that, of course, uh, made uh, John Oliver last night, too. <laughs> it's gone everywhere. And it's just Phil Mattingly reading it. And it's almost like he read it for the first time. And he's yes. like, uh, Zelensky loves, loves your ass? <laughs> anyway, it's loves, loves your ass. Dark times. We uh, need this. Zelensky loves your ass and would do anything you ask him to. Holmes also testified that Sondland told him, as we heard from Congressman Schiff, that Trump didn't, quote, give a shit about Ukraine and cared only about the big stuff like the Biden investigation. Um, love it. How does this phone call between Sondland and Trump strengthen the case for impeachment? <laughs> well, you know, it's just a it's making it stronger. And, and we all know that. Uh, of course, we knew that before we actually got more evidence about what was happening in the call. I mean, what I what I what I see happening now is it's Republicans aren't trying to get to the truth through these hearings. They're just trying to get out of a maze. They're just trying to get out. And with each passing hearing, a door comes down and blocks an exit, right? Uh, the whistleblower is a, a, a hardcore partisan Democrat. Door closes. It doesn't matter what the whistleblower says. We have the transcript and it's corroborated by every other piece of evidence. Everything you're saying is hearsay. Uh, door comes down. Actually, Sondland spoke to him directly and he's going to testify. Uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani and Sondland are the masterminds behind all of this. Door comes down. We have more evidence that Donald Trump was directing this. And, and at each day, more and more of their exits are are blocked off. And I think that that has, you know, the case is getting stronger, yes, but it's getting harder and harder for Republicans to find things to say out loud in these hearings. Yeah. How important, Tommy, is Sondland as a witness right now? Because it does seem like he's the uh, he's the one with that that will testify that has the most direct connection to Trump and, and communication with Trump. I think he is incredibly important. Like I, I don't, you don't have to be a good person to be a good witness. And that was kind of why initially, when everyone was singing the praises of some of the earlier witnesses, it made me a little bit nervous. Like, yes, it's very impressive to have a record record of service to the country and military service and all these credentials, but like scumbags and rats and liars can provide helpful information. And that that might be what Gordon Sondland is. But we also know like a record that this call happened exists because that's how phones work, right? If you call someone, there's a record of it. We should also note that if you're a senior U.S. official taking a call in, in Kiev, the Russians are collecting the contents of that phone call. Yeah. Remember Toria Newland, who was a senior official for the Obama administration, the State Department? She got her call collected, recorded, and released by the Russian government back in the day. So just you know, another thing, because since uh, operational security was such a big deal in the 2016 election, we should remember. Yeah, I heard some people say, well, you know, Sondland's credibility is in question. What kind of witness is he going to be? And like... If it was just Gordon Sondland alone giving recollections, refreshing those recollections, getting himself out of perjury, that would be one thing. Just about every witness who's already testified has had direct contact with Gordon Sondland and is they're all telling the same story, right? And two people so, heard the call. Right. So if you're saying that like you don't trust Gordon Sondland, that's fine. But two people heard the call. Tim Morrison, uh, as Schiff told us, you know, was with him in Warsaw when he said uh, the aid is conditioned on the investigations. Uh, Bill Taylor had the text with him. Volker had the text with him. Like, it doesn't really, we have enough other people testifying that, what is it? It's like the word of uh, eight or nine witnesses under oath against Gordon Sondland, who's already had to revise his testimony. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just the, the sheer number of people that have to be lying in order for uh, a <laughs> innocent version of these events it's to crazy. be true or extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, the other piece of this too is just, Gordon Sondland was a Trump guy to Trump. 
there's a reason he brings up ASAP Rocky yep. <laughs> to uh, Gordon Sondland. Gordon Sondland was just somebody he seems to like to have talked to. That that the the reports that Gordon Sondland was actually in a kind of uh, running conversation with Donald Trump is being borne out. Right, there were questions as to whether or not. Uh, Sondland was exaggerating how often he talked to Trump. Mm -hmm. It seems that that's not the case. You know, Trump only really likes talking to a certain kind of person. And Gordon Sondland is that kind of person, a rich white guy who knows how to hang. I mean, that's really what's going on here. And so he would call him and talk to him about what was on Sondland's plate, but also what was on Trump's plate. And what we were learning is that is a big part of where this conspiracy to uh, extort the Ukrainian government was unfolding. I, I think... Gordon Sondland has some uh, pretty important decisions to make this week. I don't know if he's already made them or not, but I mean, he's already revised his testimony once. Clearly, he's going to need to either say, I need to revise it again. I misspoke. I, rec I mean, he, he lied. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he already lied. So he's going to have to either revise it again or another option that I, I read he could do is um, he could plead the fifth, um, which wouldn't get us very far. Or he could, you know... It, in the face of all of these other um, witnesses who testified to the contrary, keep lying, I suppose. But like, you know, we could be headed to a Michael Cohen-esque uh, public confession here on Wednesday that sort of, uh, you know, lays the whole case out. Right. It's, it's worth remembering that, you know, one of the great natural defenses we've had against the Trump administration are the kind of people are, that are willing to work with Trump or the kind of people that are willing to work with Trump. And so, yeah, sure, there are Trump loyalists, whatever that phrase means. But really what that means is they're loyal to their own interests. Gordon Sondland forked over a million dollars. It was the worst million dollars he's ever worst spent. Worst possible. It just got down the fucking tubes. He, say, he basically says it all the time. He just got far more than he bargained for. Gordon Sondland doesn't need anything from Donald Trump. He's a wealthy man. He doesn't need a sinecure on Fox News. He's not a member of Congress. He can't be primaried. He just wants to get the fuck out of this. Go with, back to his hotels. And go back to his hotels <laughs> with some portion of his dignity and reputation. Well, at least, I think that's well, really whatever. <laughs> listen, he's 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 at the, he's he's trying to get out of this with whatever's left. Go with God, Gordo. And so, to me, I see that, and I think I see somebody who is going to uh, not want to uh, go down with the Trump ship. I do want to, before we go on, just stop and and talk a little bit about the story that you referenced, Tommy, um, from CNN that broke on Friday that really hasn't gotten much coverage because I of know. all the other shit that's happened over the weekend. Um, <laughs> according to the friends of indicted Giuliani goon Lev Parnas. Donald Trump pulled Parnas and Igor Fruman, his partner, aside during the White House Hanukkah party and gave them a secret James Bond mission from the president mm -hmm. is how it was described. A Makes secret sense. mission, James Bond mission from the president to carry out his Ukrainian bribery scheme involving fake investigations into Joe Biden. These are mobsters who've just been indicted for campaign finance felonies that are being pulled aside at the White House Hanukkah party and told, you're my guys to go do this. Here's the craziest thing. Uh, there was only actually enough corruption to last one night. <laughs> but it actually, the corruption managed to last eight nights. And that's like a pretty like miraculous thing. You know, and to, to, to yeah, to that end, love it. Uh, the Washington Post reported that in April 2018, there was a small fundraising dinner at Trump's hotel and Parnas uh, talked to Trump then about Yovanovitch. So like there's a longer paper trail and just, you know, for shits and giggles, the day before the Hanukkah party, Giuliani brought Parnas uh, as his guest to the funeral of former President George H.W. Right. Bush. So. Everything about this is weird. Is a, I hot, mean, is a hot ticket. He's lonely. He's a divorced man who needed a plus one. I don't. I, let's not indict him for being sad. <laughs> I, I sort of think that the Democrats and they might be planning this. Uh, we should ask Schiff, but uh, 
I think they should call Parnas to testify since yeah, he seems not? willing to testify. And to your point, Tommy, these don't these they don't need to all be upstanding public servants um, because Parnas was clearly in the middle of this plot. There's clearly ways to corroborate whatever testimony he offers, and there are enough stories out there, right, that people who are currently under indictment were carrying out this plot and also um, trying to, you know, grift on the the side too. Yeah, I I think that's a. I I think it would be very, very bad for uh, the Republicans to have to interrogate those two. Uh, you know, one thing we've noticed in our polls, you know, we, we look, we, we get into the details of what's happening in these hearings. And then, you know, you look at the polling about how impeachment is faring. And obviously impeachment is uh, getting more and more kind of popular with people. But you dig into the numbers and you sort of wonder, uh, it seems like the parts of what Trump did that sound the crimiest are the things that people think are the worst thing to do, right? You introduce words like tampering, intimidation, Mm -hmm. right? Words that in people's minds, wait, yeah, those are things I associate with criminality. Mm. They tend to look the worst. I can't think of anything that would look worse for Donald Trump than these two fucking goons sitting in front of Congress talking about the Hanukkah party and their secret mission. I mean, it just, it just, it's, they might as well be inside of the Watergate with flashlights. It's a great story. Um, So it was already a bad week for Trump. Um, We didn't even, (laughs) yeah, we didn't even. It is the fourth impeachment in American history. <laughs> yeah, last week. It, we didn't even, but we didn't even really talk about uh, Roger Stone being found guilty on seven counts for obstructing the Mueller investigation and lying specifically about Trump's connection to the Democratic emails that Russia stole in 2016. Uh, he could face up to 50 years in prison, so that's happening. Um, but then, after all of that, last week on Saturday, the Republican candidate that Trump campaigned for in the Louisiana governor's race, a state where he won by 20 points in 2016. Uh, lost to Democratic incumbent John Bell Edwards by about two and a half points. Uh, so first of all, we should thank everyone who um, went on Vote Save America mm-hmm. and uh, volunteered in that race, organized in that race. Um, one of the big reasons that Edwards won was because of increased turnout, especially increased African-American turnout, increased turnout in the suburbs uh, around New Orleans and some of the other major cities. So that's great. And not only did the Democratic governor win again, but um, Democrats prevented Republicans from winning a supermajority in the state legislature there, which means that Democrats will absolutely have a hand in drawing the maps in 2021, yep. which is part of our fuck Jerry fund. Yeah, we could pick up another seat there. I mean, look, I'm no expert on either Kentucky or Louisiana politics. And I think we could have a longer conversation about the relative strength of the candidates involved in these races. But we all do know that there is a narrative that, mm-hmm. you know, is over all of this. And a lot of people in D.C. were were excited, if not eager to say that if all of these Republican governors won, an impeachment was the reason why, and it was a mistake to do so. They were floating this theory, and then the exact opposite happened. So Trump does not look like a uh, particularly strong president. Certainly he can't will a candidate to victory like he used to argue he could. And I will say, you know, we cannot repeat enough the fact that Trump campaigned in both of these states tried to make the campaign about impeachment. Mm -hmm. The candidates he campaigned for in both states tried to make it about Trump and tried to make it about impeachment. These are deep red states that he won by 30 points and 20 points, and um, he couldn't do it. And you were just talking about that narrative, Tommy. Like Mm -hmm. That narrative is so deeply ingrained because reporters have always believed that impeachment was a bad idea. And one of the reasons that reporters have believed it was a bad idea is because, in fairness, a lot of the Democrats in Congress for a long time thought it was a bad idea too. And until, polling suggested and it. And polling a bad idea. suggested it too. So this will come back up because 
if Republicans decide to acquit uh, Donald Trump, if they stick with him, you know, we're going to get a whole nother round of stories. Is this going to be bad for Democrats? We can't forget that we just had two elections in the middle of this in deep red states and it just wasn't good. Yep. Also, we should talk about the new um, ABC poll out this morning. <laughs> 70% of Americans now think Trump's request to a foreign leader to investigate his political rival was wrong. 51% say it merits impeachment and removal. Another 6% say it warrants impeachment but not removal. And only 25% think Trump did nothing wrong, mm -hmm. which I think are pretty good numbers. And it's also worth noting, I think, in that poll that something like either 21 or 25% of people just really hadn't heard about it yet. Yeah. Right? So that's really the goal of this impeachment inquiry is to make sure those people know what's happening because... Boy, it seems hard to believe that you could not have heard about the president of the United States getting impeached, but it's what a world. I listen. We hey, so nice. I just they're not listening to this. Uh, they're not listening to anything. <laughs> but my goodness, to live in a world where you just found out Donald Trump got impeached. I want to go there. I want to visit you. I want to <laughs> experience it. I want to take a vacation yeah. to that life. Well, I mean, to that point. So 58 percent in the poll say they're following the hearings very or somewhat closely. Mm -hmm. Of the 21% who are following impeachment hearings very closely, 67% of that crowd think Trump should be impeached and removed. Now, you can say, is that causation or, you know, are those people more likely to watch the hearings? But the party breakdown in the people who are watching very closely is pretty even. Slightly more Democrats, but it's pretty even. So at the very least, what we can say is what the Republicans are doing during those hearings is not working. It's I, not persuading. People. I will also say I have made it a point to try to watch some Fox News uh, throughout these hearings because like it or not, I actually think it's an incredibly important, uh, you know, the way Fox News covers this impeachment is probably more important than the way CNN does and more important the way MSNBC does because uh, uh, Fox News is where they can protect themselves the most. And a lot of that coverage has been pretty straight. Brett Baer, Chris Wallace, uh, and, you know, they've had some very silly chirons throughout the hearings, but they're playing the hearings in full. Those hearings speak for themselves. Some of their conversation in the middle, they are really at a loss for how to defend the president. A few people trying to find ways to throw to what the Republicans are doing. But, you know, that to me is at least a sign that uh, the that impeachment has not only wrested the microphone uh, from Donald Trump, it's it's in part wrested it from the propaganda machine. That's not speaking. To, uh, look, what's happening between eight and eleven on Fox News continues to be a well. I was going to say uh, a, a true hor a horror, but nonetheless, where they're having trouble is when they do live coverage. Sometimes it's so stark what's happening in those hearings that it's hard to do their bullshit. And by nighttime, they've cleaned it up. And so I do think once the hearings are over they'll close ranks again and we'll get the usual Fox News. But it's interesting that they're having a hard time when faced with this testimony live mm -hmm. saying anything but uh, the truth, at least some of them, yep. a few of them. All right, let's talk about 2020. Uh, on Saturday night, the gold standard of Iowa polls from the Des Moines Register showed Mayor Pete Buttigieg had gone from 9% in September to 25% now and has taken the first clear lead in the Iowa caucuses, according to that poll. After Pete, it's a three-way tie with Elizabeth Warren at 16% and Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders at 15%. Amy Klobuchar has 6% and everyone else is at 3% or less. Also quite important, more than 60% of respondents in the poll said they'd be open to supporting someone besides their first choice. So yes, the race is still quite fluid, but man, that is a, uh, a pretty incredible poll from Mayor Pete. Uh, Tommy, you've been on the ground in Iowa. What do you attribute uh, Mayor Pete's rise to? So... A few things. I mean, I think that he's been he made, he raised a ton of money early, and he's been on TV advertising and making a case for himself. I think that is that is 
been important. I think he's had a big team there and they've been organizing. I thought he had a good JJ speech uh, and that helped set a narrative. And I also think that, you know, his rise seems to coincide with a dip for Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, I do think, look, this is a great poll for Mayor Pete. I think it looks particularly great for him because he's way up since the last register poll, which was in September. But I think you've seen some of this strength in other polls. The Monmouth poll recently has showed him doing very well. Um, the most important point, though, is the one you stated afterwards, which is only 30% of these people have made up their mind. Yeah. This thing is so fluid. And the caucus seems like it will be massive. So figuring out who is actually going to turn out is going to be incredibly difficult. Love it. What do you think? Uh, obviously, it's, you know, it was surprising. I think I, I was not surprised to see Pete rising. I was surprised to see by how much he's rising. You know, we talked about this when Elizabeth Warren was kind of having a trajectory that looked like this. And we, one of the things we noted is that, you know, she'd actually had a pretty smooth few months with with very few, if anyone, taking any shots at her. Um, I think Pete's been in a similar place actually recently uh, as as Elizabeth Warren has drawn some fire and as Biden has drawn some fire and, and Kamala and a few others have actually uh, drawn some heat as well. Uh, you know, now, now I think I think what's been happening is when candidates suddenly pop up uh, uh, to the front of the pack in Iowa in polling, they go from being covered in standard definition to being covered in ultra HD with HDR. And uh, I think that will present some challenges for Pete. I think we'll see at the debate on Wednesday um, coming becoming an Iowa front runner will have some costs because I, yep. I would expect uh, 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 debaters to take some shots. He's actually, I think, Julian Castro not being in this debate, I think actually that is a very fortunate thing for Pete because I could have seen Julian yeah. Castro taking a pretty good swing at Mayor Pete. Um, I also do think now the question will, look, Tommy makes this point all the time, people want to win. They want to win, they want to win, they want to win. And now that Pete has this real chance of winning Iowa and it looks like it's a real possibility, the question about his support uh, from a huge portion of the Democratic coalition, people of color, will start to become not just a moral question, but a political one. Uh, I will say to, to start that, you know, evidence is mixed on whether voters make up their minds based on ideology or how much voters think about ideology. Um, we, we know that for sure. And the conversation about lanes in the primary can sometimes be like a little oversimplified. Mm -hmm. But with all that said, um, they did ask in this poll, is the candidate, um, do you think this candidate's views are too liberal, just about right, or too conservative? Um, Buttigieg fares the best of the four candidates in the lead with 63% saying he's about right and uh, only 13% calling him too conservative and 7% saying he's too liberal. And so he is he's much better than all the other candidates on that. Um, he clearly, you know, we talked about this during the after the last debate. He's made this move to sort of capture some of that that moderate vote. And, you know, I have to say, like, I didn't I was skeptical whether it would work, not because I didn't think there were a ton of moderate voters, but because I thought it would look too transparent. Um, at least it seemed like that in the debate. I thought his LJ speech was like I, I was much happier to see that than I than than him at the debate. So I think he was better there. But clearly it's working because he lead um, he leads now because he's at 30 percent among moderates and conservatives. That's now his best ideological group, and it was his worst in June. So clearly that's actually, that's worked for him. Right, it's interesting. Like, Duvall has said now that he's getting in this race in part because he sees an opening between the the, the moderates and the left of the party, which is, I think, which just means he thinks Biden isn't up to this, and he thinks Warren and Sanders are too far uh, to the left. 
fine, but it looks like uh, several others have had this idea and Pete being the leading one of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that almost every issue debate we've had should be viewed as a proxy for electability, right? Because no one knows what that means, but they, everyone just, you know, 63% of the people in the register poll said they're more focused on electability than issues. That said, at the same time, uh, and I believe the CBS CBS News had a tracking poll of early states that came out over this weekend too. Yeah. And in that poll, you saw... Uh, the support among early state Democrats for Medicare for all down seven percentage points. And I suspect that that a big piece of that is the discussion about whether it's realistic or whether you could get elected supporting that position. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about um, Elizabeth Warren, who was the front runner in the last poll. Um, In this poll, you know, we were just talking about the statistic for Pete, the share of Democrats who describe her as too liberal has risen from 23 percent in March to 38 percent today. Um, One possible reason for that, as you mentioned, Tommy, has been her support for Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All legislation, which has been under attack from almost all of the other candidates aside from Bernie. Mm -hmm. Um, But now uh, Warren has released her own plan. In her first 100 days, she said she would pass a bill through the budget reconciliation process, which is key because that only requires 51 votes in the Senate and not getting rid of the filibuster. Um, She would pass a bill through that process to create a very generous Medicare public option that would be open to everyone and free for children and people with lower incomes. And then later, during her third year in office, she would try to pass Bernie's full Medicare for all bill that would fully transition away from private insurance. Uh, love it. What did you think about this plan? It's interesting. It's 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 interesting watching her try to thread this needle between not wanting to abandon her support for Medicare for all, but but similar to Kamala Harris and others, reflecting on the fact that there are uh, real political challenges in terms of actually passing Medicare for all, and clearly they are worried about the attacks on Medicare for all as being too radical or uh, hurting them in uh, uh, some of the uh, like battleground states. Like it's just so clearly a effort to kind of bridge the gap between what Pete has been saying uh, about Medicare for all who want it and the fact that the polling bears out the fact that Medicare, a Medicare public option uh, polls far better than Medicare for all. And the fact that from a moral point of view uh, and from a uh, political point of view, she does not want to lose uh, the, the, the bona fides that come with being a champion of single pair. What did you think, Tommy? I mean, it seemed like I think she wants to be talking about other things. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like we've been stuck in this cul-de-sac for a long time. And look, it's a very important cul-de-sac. I don't mean to diminish it in any way. But I think, you know, her her message is less distinct from Bernie on this issue than in a lot of other places. And I think she just wanted to get through it and get to there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great. I was so excited by the plan. Um, and my only complaint was I wish she had done it earlier. And, you know, the New York Times has a, a great TikTok of this. And she had been working on this for a long time. Yeah. So even before a lot of the Medicare for All attacks really picked up, she had been working on this for a while. And I think it's, I mean, it reminded me of, we always talk about this, you know, the interview she did with you, Tommy, here on Pod Save America way back when, when she said, yeah, I'm for Medicare for All, but there's a lot of different pathways to get there. And I think she, I mean, she is way more pragmatic when it comes to legislating and governing than I think her critics or even most people would imagine. And that's her, her record in the Senate bears that out. And I think she has known for a long time. She she gets how hard it's going to be to pass Bernie's Medicare for all bill. <laughs> um, like you got all these Democratic senators saying we're not going to get rid of the filibuster. And even if you do, there's a bunch of them who said, no way will I pass that. Um, 
you know, one of the problems for Medicare for all supporters, the, the people who like Bernie's bill is they started this whole effort by talking about the polling and how popular Medicare for all was in the polls. But then when the polls started asking about private insurance and do you like a public option better? And everyone said, yeah, we much rather have a public option, not just the general electorate, but it's like a split among Democrats and now probably slightly more want a public option than Medicare for all. If you, you know, live by the polls, die by the polls. <laughs> and so the problem for the, the, the Bernie Sanders legislation supporters is you have this other piece of legislation that is more popular, more easily passed, and most importantly, in the short term, would cover every single American, right? <laughs> and yes, you'd now what it wouldn't do is you'd still have some waste and inefficiency from having private insurance. You, you know, they would still be able to pull some of their bullshit, but every single person in the country would have guaranteed care if they wanted it. Yeah, it's um, it's just interesting. Like, it was no, it wasn't necessary that like every single Democratic debate would end up in a debate about public option versus Medicare for all. That that would become such a central focus of the debate. And you know, I think it's just a it was a reality of just how these debates unfolded, how some of these questions unfolded. That that the order of operations was she was for the Bernie plan. Uh, then she faced a lot of really hard questions that she seemed to not want to answer about paying for it. Then she provided an answer on paying for it. And then she provided this final piece of the plan. That that sequencing, uh, and I don't claim to, I'm not, I'm not suggesting there's some better way it could have unfolded, but like I do think that that sequencing got her kind of stuck mm-hmm. in a conversation that I think hopefully now, even more importantly than just having, than, than the plan itself politically, is that now she can, to Tommy's point, make that part of her speech, but not the focus of every event, the focus of the question, the focus of the debate. Yeah. And look, the, the, the lazy way of talking about Elizabeth Warren as too liberal is to say that all the stuff she's proposing and, you know, her economic populism is too far to the left for most people. And that's just not true. The only policy that she's proposing that's unpopular in some degree is Bernie's Medicare for all piece of legislation. The wealth tax, again, is incredibly popular, according to almost every poll, among not just Democrats and independents, but Republicans, too. <laughs> it's also, I, I, I find some of the, you know, sort of the, what are the, the donor revolt and some of the wealthier uh, uh, public speaking against Elizabeth Warren to be so frustrating because there's this idea that, oh, she's too radical. And it reminds me actually a lot of what was said about Obama, who was mildly critical of Wall Street, mildly critical of the wealthy, but became... yeah, he said the word "fat cats" once, and it was the end of the fucking world. <laughs> right, and 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 so there was, the, but there's this narrative took hold that somehow he was sort of so vicious toward them, and then you would try to find any evidence of it in the record, and you couldn't. I think it's actually true for Warren t- as well. It is true that her policies <laughs> are much I mean, she, more antagonistic. She to does the wealthy. have that. She does have that billionaire tears mug, but uh, well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, she is right. running ads only on CNBC in <laughs> Iowa. I would, yes, I would yes. say I would say into this one. I would say a little further. But this was coming. Yeah, she. She's embraced the fight, but the fight came long before she started selling billionaire mugs. The point I'm making is only don't you if you want, <laughs> we expect presidents to lead. And one of the ways you lead is by staking out a position that maybe goes beyond what's possible in Congress. Yeah. And then the, the negotiation ends up at a good place because you had a president who was willing to push harder and go further. All of these, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 nervous Democrats about like actually seem to be done, have a, this idea in their head that she'll be a radical president. Like, don't you trust the limits of the system? Like, w- this is how it works. You want yeah. a president who's going to be bold. That's the idea. But it, but it's more about um, 
you know, this question of electability and I know it drives everyone fucking crazy and it should and we shouldn't be thinking about it. And I, it is completely hard to judge. We don't know what the fuck we're talking about. But when you talk to voters, especially voters in Iowa, right, um, they are they are terrified of losing to Donald Trump, as we all should be. And so what Elizabeth Warren is going to have to do now and her campaign has known this for a while. This is that, that the electability thing is a challenge is make some argument um, as Pete's out there on the rise and Biden's sort of hanging tough in a lot of these other states, um, why Elizabeth Warren is the best person to go against Donald Trump and win. And there's an argument to make there, um, but she she's going to have to make it, you know? Yeah, it's, it, I, you know, one thing that I also take away from Pete leading in this poll is less obvious, is less about Warren and more about what it says about Biden in that Biden is the avatar for those arguments against Elizabeth Warren. But I, people in Iowa have who are paying attention, who are seeing these campaigns, who are who are uh, are, are experiencing this race firsthand are looking at Joe Biden versus Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana and saying he's the electable one. And it, there's the electability conversation is so scrambled by the fact that the national poll leader, Joe Biden, uh, has lost so much ground uh, on one of the key questions in the race. Yeah, though, I would say if I was Joe Biden looking at that Iowa poll, the measure of comfort I would take, and especially looking at that CBS battleground set of poll trackers, is if Pete Buttigieg wins Iowa, um, but is still sitting there with, you know, little to no support among black voters and now elizabeth warren hasn't won iowa and joe biden is still leading with black voters um by huge margins in places like south carolina and north carolina which he is because we just saw polls there over the last couple weeks and we go into super tuesday and now he doesn't have elizabeth warren as a threat and now Pete Buttigieg isn't doing well with voters of color either joe biden could run the tables you know yeah i mean the cbs poll the way they framed it is a distinction of safe versus risky. And even the people who don't support Biden think he's the safer choice. So it does make you wonder if there's some room for people to come home to Biden. And that would make me nervous if I were all the other campaigns knowing that this electability discussion and like, yes, it's fraught, it's confused. But like, I, I also don't blame people for only caring about finding someone who can win because God, that's where my brain is too. Right. You know, but and, and we can all scream about the unfairness of how people judge electability. And we should. And we have. Um, <laughs> and we will. We live but, yeah. but for for most people out there who are not paying as close attention as as we are to the race and who might not tune in until there's an actual winner in one of these primaries, that's what they're thinking about. And and you can't blame them for thinking like, no. God, we got an I want to I want someone who can win. You, yeah. At some point, we can't get mad at voters for thinking the way they think. And the way you <laughs> prove you're electable is by winning. And there is a lot of embedded racism and sexism and, you know, all kinds of problems within how people make those judgments. But ultimately, your job as a candidate is to just get as many votes as humanly possible and you will prove to the world that you are then electable. Well, and and, and you make an electability case, right? I mean, Elizabeth Warren kind of started doing this at the um, at the LJ dinner when she started talking about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Right. She can turn to Pete and say, I have experience that you don't have. Um, you know, Pete can make electability arguments. Biden will. I think you'll see a lot of these candidates in this week's debate try to make some kind of electability argument based on their own credentials. I mean, Pete's Iowa LJ speech 
was a huge portion of it was an electability speech. It was here's the contrast between me and Donald Trump. Here's how I knocked down every kind of criticism that he could level because, you know, I served. He didn't. And went over some independence. Yes, I'm from yeah. the Midwest. He's from a, a tower, whatever, whatever yeah. it will be. He sort of is. I think, you know, it speaks to his just to compliment Pete too. like he's smart. He's yeah. really fucking smart. And he has been thinking about this in a really sophisticated way. Uh, and it's bearing out. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, uh, we'll have my interview with Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. I am now joined by the senior senator from Ohio and author of the new book, Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Sherrod Brown. And Senator from your wife's home state. Worked That's right. That, in. that is right. right. As, as we always say when you're here, the reason that we're married, that we met, is because of you. My office, Emily. Yep. That's right. Emily worked a long time ago in Washington. <laughs> so I want to get to your fantastic book in a minute. Uh, but first, I want to talk about some of the news over the last sure, few days. We're recording this on Friday. Uh, this morning, Donald Trump attacked former Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch during a hearing where she testified about being threatened by Donald Trump. Um, what was your reaction to that and, and in general, just some of the Trump officials who have testified over the last uh, over the last week? Yeah, well, it's it's clear that this president committed a crime and it's it's something Richard Nixon never did, um, bribing a foreign official uh, to ask for help for his own election. Yeah. And so um, I think that uh, he's Pelosi's comments were just excellent. 
um, that he thinks he's he's in above his head and he just lashes out at everybody. I mean, I, I don't I don't I don't think I've ever met a human being that consistently criticizes publicly the people who work in his operation, the right. people that he hired. And it's in this attack that, you know, from two days earlier when he didn't, he said he didn't even listen or watch to tweeting and criticizing her and bullying her. And in the end, all, you know, he's a bully and all bullies are cowards. And yeah. that shows every day with this president. Do you think that if this does get to the Senate, if the House votes to impeach, um, could you see any of your more moderate or independent-minded Republican colleagues um, actually voting to convict? Um, I couldn't today, with the possible exception of Romney. Um, nobody nobody is there, but I, I know what I hear, and I hear senators privately, some Republican senators, say things like they know he lies, they know he's in over his head. Um, some know he's, some are willing to say privately he's a racist, um, but they love their tax cuts and they love their attacks on environmental and, and environmental, environmental issues and, and workers that, that Trump does. And they love his young judges on the Supreme Court and, and for the, the whole court system. He also, um, and I think they're scared of his base and they're yeah. scared of the, but, but they help to make that base so solid. Cause if, if you're a Trump voter in Ohio or Michigan or Florida and anywhere else, you watch. You may watch Fox. You may listen to Rush Limbaugh, and then your whole that all the Republicans whom you vote for, none of them ever criticize him. You're going to think he does no wrong, and so um, that's why they're so scared of the base because they help to create that base. What about some of the senators who are up in the more moderates, like a, a Maine or a? Oh, I think they're, and they're sweating or... more. I mean, you look at Arizona, Colorado, Maine, increasingly Iowa, increasingly North Carolina, yeah. maybe Georgia. Maybe Kentucky, but a whole different. Um, and we, you saw in, in in your in-laws' neighborhood just across the river That's in right. Kentucky. That that may have been the reason that the Democrats won because suburban women in um, in, in sub- suburbs of Cincinnati, but in Kentucky, really changed the that race. Um, but I, I think that I think they're scared. I think they're sweating. I think that if more things come out and the public turns even more strongly against against Trump. If that number goes well over 50, um, I mean, there's 35 or 40 that are not going to move, but that's still a lot that could. Uh, and that happens, um, they start they start getting scared, and there is a chance of it's it's hard to think there'd be enough to get over it's the threshold of removal. Yeah. But um, and that's assuming every Democrat and I, I we've not really talked about that. And, and most of us are are, are both. Um, I think we're, we're, we believe in our country and our constitution enough to not to say and really not even to decide what we're going to do if it gets to that. Because I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I understand that an indictment, uh, impeachment is an indictment in a court of law. And the, the Senate, 100 members of the Senate or the 100 jurors, and we should listen to the evidence and make the decision based on the evidence. And um, I'm certain if I mean, I, I'm not certain because I don't know what Trump will say. I don't know what the answer is, what Trump's lawyers will say and what his answers to all this is, but are. But if if it really is done the way it should as a jury, we will we will do the right thing. We'll convict him and remove him if he deserves it. And we will not if he doesn't. So uh, Nancy Pelosi announced this week that a, a deal is imminent um, on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, trade agreement. Uh, you've been long critical of uh, free trade agreements and have spoken specifically about issues with past versions of this agreement. Mm-hmm. What do you need to see in sort of a final deal for you to, to support? Well, we, like? we, fundamentally, you judge a trade agreement by does this lift standards, worker and environmental standards to the point that 
that we don't see, we, that the trade agreement doesn't continue to send jobs overseas. Mm-hmm. And um, this agreement's not not very close yet to that. The language that Speaker Pelosi's trying to get in the agreement, the language that I'm trying to get in the agreement with Rosa DeLora, the, the sort of the House member that's doing the most here, um, it's called the Brown-Wyden labor enforcement language. And that that will answer the issue of, of stopping the outsourcing of jobs. I mean, GM, GM closes down in Youngstown the Lordstown plant, three shifts, 1,500, three times in a row, they laid one shift off. Several months later, a second, the second, the day they laid the second shift off, they announced they were moving jobs to Mexico. So they're still doing that. Trump's done nothing to stop that. And so um, it's pretty clear that a, a renegotiated NAFTA has to have that in it um, or it doesn't go. Is there any concern among Democrats that you know, if Trump gets a, a win on a, on a trade deal, then he runs around 2020 talking about how he has got this big win on trade. And- well, yeah, he's either going to do that or he's going to say, I was making NAFTA a lot better and Democrats didn't do anything. Right. So, so either, way. either way, he's going to say that and he's not going to tell the truth because he's not he's not at all fought for the provisions for workers. Of course, he hasn't. I mean, the White House looks like a retreat for Wall Street executives and it's never he's never looked. I mean, the, the, fundamentally, the reason we're going to win in 2020 is that Democrats are, are the party of workers, the party of dignity of work and Trump's betrayed workers. And you can just go down the line, whether it's people with pre-existing condition, whether minimum wage, whether it's the overtime rule, whether it's trade. Yeah. So you've been a long-term uh, advocate for Medicare for All, but you've called Bernie Sanders' version uh, a, a terrible mistake for a, a Democratic nominee to support in the general. Um, I don't know if you saw Elizabeth Warren today sort of uh, released a plan where she basically splits it up into two different parts and she would pass legislation that would basically create a sort of robust public option and open up Medicare to more people uh, in the first hundred days. And then basically in her third year, she would try to complete the transition away from private insurance. What do you think about her plan? Is that better? Is that more palatable? I actually traded phone calls with her today about that because we've I've been talking to her about the, the whole issue. I, you know, look at it this way. Way. Every everybody on that stage, however many there are on the stage in the next debate, <laughs> changes every, every, everybody changes, yeah, every, changes day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in that stage is for universal coverage. Um, that's what Democrats are for in it. And whether they everybody each has a different path, each has a different speed at which to accomplish it. Um, but the important thing is everybody's for universal coverage on our side. And Trump's trying to take it away. I mean, yeah. first he failed in the Senate by one vote. To, um, to repeal the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and now he's in the Northern District of uh, Northern District of Texas courts um, to try to overturn it. And the the fight needs to be that the fight. I mean, there's going to be differences among Democrats. I understand that, but we need to make this contrast. And all of me again, and if you've heard me say, and I know you you understand, think about this too, that it's whose side are you on? And Trump clearly on healthcare isn't on 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 the side of most people. So I I, I will talk less about any individual plans or programs. And I, that's what I think our candidates should do mm-hmm. and make the contrast that where, where we are and where Trump is. And, you know, for instance, in Ohio, 2 million Ohioans don't have, 2 million Ohioans have a, out of 12 million population have a pre-existing condition. Um, Trump overturns the ACA. This court does that. Um, all 2 million of them are at some risk of losing their health insurance. Yeah. And that's that's a much better way to talk about it than do Medicare volunteer at 55 and negotiate drug prices and take away the tax subsidies for, for companies that advertise drugs on, on television. Um, all of that, all of that is the, the direction to go. And that's a sharp contrast because Trump's on the wrong side of every one of those. Do you think that we've uh, spent a little too much time debating the finer points of all these plans on the debate Yeah, of, stage? Co- of course we are. <laughs> and the public quits listening and, and Republicans figure out how to write ads from them. 
And I understand when you're running a primary, you've got to differentiate yourself and you don't stand on the, on the platform and say, oh, we all agree on this because they don't fund them. They don't agree on a lot of details. And I know they're, they're, they're fairly significant differences, but, but nothing compared to, to, to Trump, to that, that difference. And I, I think a candidate that starts going to that stage and, and sort of talking in that way will be really appealing to Democrats. Um, you know, they attack Trump, but attacking Trump on character doesn't seem to, to break into his 45% yeah. support, but showing workers in Zanesville and Mansfield and Lima and Cincinnati, Ohio, that, that Trump has abandoned them on, on jobs, on wages, on health care benefits, is, will, will begin to peel off enough of those to win Ohio. So uh, let's talk about Desk 88. Uh, it, is, it is not the kind of, like, I might run for president, so I need to write a book kind of book. Uh, it's something that you've been working on for quite a while. So what, what made you uh, want to write the book and tell us a little bit about it and sort of what the process was of writing yeah, it? It's, 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 it's mostly about hope in the sense that I took, um, I, I, my first, when I first was when, when senators were looking, you know, the freshman senators were looking where they were going to sit on the Senate floor. Uh, there are no bad seats. You're not sitting behind a post, right? Yeah. So I, I started pulling out desk drawers because a, a senior senator told me senators scratched their name in their desk drawers. And uh, about the fourth desk I, I looked at, um, it had said McGovern, South Dakota, Gore, Tennessee, Hugo Black, Alabama. And then it just said one word, Kennedy. So Ted was Ted Kennedy. This was 2007, mm-hmm. standing nearby. And I said, come here a second. And I looked, I showed it. And I said, which brother's desk is this? He said, well, it has to be Bobby's because I have Jack's. So I just started thinking about who these senators are and what contribution they made. And fundamentally, it's a book about um, the power of government to make people's lives better. And, you know, progressives don't, we don't win often, but when we win, we win really big. You know, we win big and look at history, Medicare, um, 40 hour work weeks, civil rights, voting rights, safe drinking water laws, clean air laws, protections for the disabled, Pell Grants, um, Medicaid. I mean, just one, we win really big. We may lose two or four years later, but public benefits from these kinds of reforms for years. And that's this canary pin I wear is all about that. It was given me in a Workers Memorial Day rally 20 years ago. It's a depiction of a canary that the mine workers took down in a cage down in the mines. And in those days, they didn't have a union strong enough or a government that cared enough to protect them. And this symbolizes me the the power of government to make positive change. And it it really is based on government responding to, to good, to social movements, um, in creating progressive eras like we had with Roosevelt and we had in the 60s and in very possibly we have in 2020 and the years beyond that if this election turns out the way that it really could. Of all the, the eight senators and all the stories that you researched, uh, what surprised you the most? Did you learn anything that was particularly interesting? Yeah, I, I didn't know. Um, I think what maybe surprised me the most was the unevenness of all of them. Mm-hmm. And what what I, I maybe liked the most was the three three of them, two of them especially, didn't start their careers all that well. Um, Hugo Black was a KKK member and yeah. said he I belonged to any group that got me votes. Thirty years later, after he was put on the he was Roosevelt's favorite labor senator. He wrote eight hour eight hour work forty hour work week. He wrote some with Wagner some of the collective bargaining laws. Thirty years later, when he was on the court, he he was burned in effigy um, in his law school in Tuscaloosa um, because of Brown v. Board of Education. Because he helped, and he ruled the right way. Yeah, and he ruled the right way. Yeah, I was going to say it was Um, quite a. Kennedy Kennedy started off um, 
you know, with working for McCarthy. Then he tapped Martin Luther King's phone in the early 60s when he was attorney general. But look at the Bobby Kennedy that a whole lot of us love the last three or four years of his life. So yeah. that's that's the most pleasant kind of surprise. Um, you write about how history has always been a battle between the innovators uh, and the uh, conservators, um, the latter being those with wealth and privilege who consolidate power by exploiting people's fear that change is too risky. Um, it seems like today a big part of that strategy is exploiting people's fear of a changing, diversifying America. How do progressives overcome that? That's a, that's a really good observation. Yeah. I mean, the, the Emerson said history is that fight conservatives and progressives and the conservatives they're they all the, the they they have they have most of the media they have the lobbyists they have money they have and and they want to hold fundamentally want to hold under their power and privilege and wealth and status um progressives want to push forward and um it's it's so difficult because of the way there, there are always fewer conservators conservatives because they 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 they're you know they're the wealthy interest groups and all there are fewer of them but they create fear of change and you hit it exactly right i mean it was mccarthy it was communism in the 50s it was it was integration and maybe in the 60s and 70s and 80s yeah. and it was terrorism and then in the and in, in the last 20 years and it's it's always been immigration. There's always been that strain of people, and I just think it's we you just have to out organize them. I mean, you, huh. I think that you know you look at you you say how do you sort of assuage those fears? Look at your generation versus mine. Look at people younger than you in their in their twenties and how used how so many of them have lived in a much more diverse world than people growing up when I did and yeah. and, and your parents or and that 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 gives me a lot of hope that that um, when you're exposed to people of all races and religions, I mean, I, I don't think I was thinking of Tanya, I were talking about this, I don't think I knew a Muslim kid when I went through, went through 12 years of public schools, certainly yeah. didn't in grade school, and I'm not so, now in the, being exposed to people that are, that are different from you really gives, just makes you a better person and makes, and makes you much less fearful of change. Yeah. Um, the book is all about, you know, different progressive eras um, in American politics. How much do you think the next great progressive era um, might be held back by the Senate itself, um, and partly because of geographic polarization and the way the red states are? Like, you know, I try to count all the time. I, I, I can barely count to, you know, getting 51, 52 Democratic votes with some of them being moderates, like let alone getting 51, a 51 vote progressive majority in the Senate. Like, do you, how much do you worry about sort of well, the structure I, of the Senate? The, the, the Senate is the Senate has a conservative bias to us, just like the Electoral College does, just right. like the court system does, which again makes it harder in these progressive areas. I think that three years ago I wouldn't have said this, maybe because I hadn't finished the book, maybe because I've seen McConnell for three more years. Right. That um, I think we eliminate the filibuster. I think that this this we we cannot. The filibuster is such an enemy of it's it's such a such a conservatizing influence yeah. on on our body politic. And it's just too hard. Um, you know, it's so hard to do a constitutional amendment because you need 37 states. It's so hard. Uh, every, almost every election, I really need to, to look at these numbers, but consistently, even years that aren't particularly good Democratic years, more votes are cast for the Democratic candidates for the Senate and the aggregate than Republicans. I yeah, mean, look at always. this state, look at New York, look at um, Texas is now getting closer and closer. 
Um, and so we just do better. We, we get more votes, but we don't have enough senators. So if we get to 51, I think there's going to be a, a real movement to eliminate the filibuster and begin to move on progressive issues on climate, on dignity of work. On, um, I was in Laconia, New Hampshire, when I was thinking about the presidential race. And Connie and I met a woman who was a um, child, been in child care for working for 40 years. And she said um, child care should be a public good. And that term just so much comes with that. Yeah. If we start thinking that way, we start thinking like the rest of the developed world, the rich world that that for uh, for for mothers and fathers after babies for vacation time, for all the things that for sick days, all that. Smart. Uh, the book is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It is fantastic. I've read it. I really love it. And not only that, but John John actually did a blurb for me. Yeah, I blurbed it, yeah, which blurbed is it. Why, pretty you know, cool. Read it and blurbed it. Um, Sherrod, thank you so much for, uh, Great for fun. coming Thanks. on Pod Save America as always. Appreciate Thanks. it. Good. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks to Adam Schiff and Sherrod Brown for joining us today. And uh, we'll see you every minute of uh, every day all week because uh, <laughs> news never stops. too much news. News never stops. Bye, guys. Bye. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week.